0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. And uh, there's a lot to talk about today. I'm actually very excited to give an overview um, of light in the Torah. Um, I'm, I'm sort of calling this talk A, a Brief History of Light, and um, to trace light from before creation till the perfection of the world, um, and focusing specifically on Moshe. But before we get to that, I just want to mm-hmm. share a couple of things. Um, uh, I had a moment yesterday, I was walking home from Shul, and um, it was Shabbos, and I had read recently in a biography of uh, Reb Shraga Feivel Mendelovich, who was the founder of Torah Vidas, which is really sort of acclaimed as the first yeshiva in America. He loved nature, and he loved uh, the Tehillim, the songs of, of David, because he felt like that's how Hashem is expressing. Nature is how Hashem is expressing himself in this world. And he loved, he loved like trees and leaves on trees. And he felt like all of them are are singing to Hashem all the time. And and one time he, the, in this biography, they, they include a story that someone in his presence had pulled a leaf off a tree, I guess absentmindedly. And he said, you just stopped its song to Hashem. Right? Which is sort of like a, you know, wow. And then another moment, it said that what, when he was, I guess, sick in the hospital, I don't know how old he was at this point. By the way, speaking of how old he was, it said he didn't speak till he was five. Can you imagine this was someone who, you know, a huge mind and everything like that. You can imagine in today's day and age how his parents well, would have worried. People who start speaking at around two. So five years old, he didn't say a single word till. Um, anyway, so he was in the hospital. I think he was a little bit older. And the, the wind was rustling through the trees. And it, 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 the, the, the biographers record that he got so excited that the, the doctors had to calm him down. Because he felt like this tree was like really singing to God. You know, He was energized by it so much. So anyway, I was walking, putting those stories together. I was walking home from Shul. And I thought to myself, because it's Shabbos, I can't pull a leaf off a tree, even if I wanted to. So there's a certain level of parity, of equality, between me and a tree right now. And me and all the leaves on the trees. And I thought, and I think I was singing too. And so I'm singing, and they're singing, and I was just just one of the leaves on the tree. But I was a person. But I couldn't pull a leaf off that tree if I wanted to. So it was sort of like... It was weird. It, normally, I, when I'm walking down the street looking at trees, I don't consider myself in the company of peers. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's how it was. And it was a beautiful thing because of the laws of Shabbos. Um, you know, just before we get to the topic, there's another story I wanted to tell you. It's, it's not related to the topic, but um, but it just was something that, that, that was kind of funny. Um, last week, I... Uh, I got a shopping list, and I was at Ralph's. That's the big supermarket chain here in Los Angeles. So I was at Ralph's, and uh, Judy, my wife, had written this thing. And normally speaking, if there's something unusual on the list or something she really needs, she'll point it out to me before I go, um, because sometimes the, the lists are complicated. <laughs> they sometimes look like these Einsteinian you know, math kind of things on the blackboard. you know if you can picture those? So, so anyway... So, just to make sure I don't miss anything. So, so anyway, she, she didn't say anything. And uh, I went to Ralph's. And I'm looking over the list, getting the various items. And then I see something on the list. And it's very hard for me to read what this says. And I'm straining to read it. And it says, here's what I think it says. A cheap white funnel. And I thought, that's really odd. You know, it's such a bizarre... I mean, I've been shopping... We, For years and years and years and years. I've never seen that on the list in my life. A cheap white funnel. And she didn't mention it before I left, which would be the normal thing if it's something really out of the ordinary. So um, I decided it didn't say a cheap white funnel so that I could ignore it. (laughs) Because I just couldn't wrap my brain around it. I wouldn't know where to look. I just... It just... It was like one of those moments, this does not compute, and I just kind of went on with the shopping. So, uh, among the items, it was uh, Thursday it was a Thursday night before Shabbos, were flowers, so I bought some flowers. And I got to the house, and I was unloading the various things, and I thought, okay, well, listen, um, I'm going to put away the flowers. And I'll tell you, the last few weeks, it's really too much information right now. You ready for this? The last few weeks... I really disagree with the way the flowers have been put into the vase. <laughs> it was very... They were, the vases were very narrow. And the flowers were tall. And it's like they were standing at attention. And they looked like that they were being... They weren't falling naturally. There was nothing aesthetic about them. And it was very uncomfortable to me... For me to look at the way the flowers were sort of like being forced to stand... Too erect in the vase. It just bothered me. Okay. This concludes that moment of oversharing. <laughs> so I decided <laughs> I decided that uh I was going to find the vase that would be the the, the one that would sort of like sort of like look better I So anyway, so I'm looking I need a, a wide mouthed vase. Right? So I'm looking various places. I can't find one. And then I see there's one all the way up in a, in a, in a, in a cabinet. And I say, yeah, that one, I, I, well, we haven't used that vase in years. Now, if I don't know how many years it's been. If you told me it was ten years, I would believe you. It may have been less, but it's certainly years since we used that vase. And it's all the way up on the top shelf. And I say, okay, that's, that's the one. So I reach up, and I pull it down, and I look inside, And inside this vase is a cheap white funnel. (laughs) I can't... I I, I can't believe what I'm saying. Like, what? You know, and then I asked Judy, I said, did you put a cheap white funnel on the list? And she said, yes. I was like, Okay. Anyway, I put the flowers in the vase. They looked great, by the way. They looked great. Um, But anyway. And there it is. Yeah, we had the funnel as well. Now, Now, I mentioned this a while back, just to give a point to this story, which is the meaning of coincidence. And I hope that you'll all embrace this thought and put it into your life. And then we'll get to the topic at hand which is, what do you do when something like that happens? And after years of thought, I've come to the following conclusion, which is, you have to pray. When something like that happens, you have to pray. That's the bottom line. I'll tell you how I derived that, just very quickly. You see, I once saw a, uh, a source, a, like a secular source, but um, there's something to it. Um, which said that when a coincidence happens, that's God's way of waving hello to you. Right? Which is nice. But, but we can go deeper than that, because God is always running the world. God runs the world constantly. Every aspect of our lives. So that being the case, there's really nothing unusual when, when something amazing happens. What is unusual, though, because there is something special, is that God is alerting you to the fact, making known to you that he's running everything. You see, it says in Pirkei Abos, I believe it's chapter 3, Mishnah 18. Um, I think so. Where it says that, uh, Rabbi Kiva says, that, that beloved are human beings, but it's a sign that they're even more beloved, that God lets them know that they're beloved. And then it quotes a passage about how beloved human beings are. And then it goes on about how precious Israel is to God. And it says it's even more, um, even more special that God makes known to us that we're his children as well. So in other words, when a coincidence like this happens, God is, so to speak, going out of his way to tell you that he's with you. He's always with you. But what's special about a coincidence is that God is going out of his way to let you know that he's with you. That being the case, that means that it's an Esratzon, which means a time of favor. Because if God is going out of his way to let you know that he's with you, that means that's, that's a very special revelation of love at that moment. Which means that you have to use that moment practically. Which means what? Pray! Pray! Pray for your needs! Pray for the needs of your loved ones. Pray for the needs of the community of the world. Pray for Mashiach. You see? So, anytime you get a coincidence in your life like that, you have to understand that's a time of divine favor and use it to pray. Okay. So, now, I want to talk about light, an overview of light as we see it um, in the Torah. And, I want to focus in on something that I hadn't, I hadn't noticed or really paid much attention to. And, and, uh, and this turns out to be a key to a very large um, idea, okay? And it's, um, it's the birth of Moshe. And when Moshe is born, it says that uh, his parents saw him and that he was good, all right? I'll read you the the exact uh, the exact Pesach. Okay? This is in uh, uh, Exodus, Shmos, chapter 2, verse 2. It says the following. Well, I'll start from verse 1. And a man went from the house of Levi, and he took a daughter of Levi. Okay, this is Moshe's parents, uh, Amram and Yocheved. Uh, By the way, it's very significant that they aren't mentioned by name there. Okay? Um... And there's a lot of commentary on that. One idea that I heard—I forgot from whom—maybe from Rabbi Simcha Weinberg—is that uh, Hashem was going to bring the redemption no matter what. And it doesn't—the fact that they're not mentioned by name—is a sign that it wasn't contingent on them. In other words, they merited that it should flow through them. But Hashem was going to do it because He promised to do it. So He's going to do it no matter what. That's why the specific names aren't mentioned. That's an interesting idea. Anyway, so the next pasik, Here's what we're getting to. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was good, and she hid him for three months. Alright, this pasik is an amazing pasik. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was good, and she hid him for three months. So, so the Gomorrah, in Sota, and Rashi brings this, asks a great question on the te- text, which is: Doesn't every parent see their baby as good? So, what is the text adding by saying that she saw that he was good? Right? You hear the question? And I, again, I, I just I, I loved I loved that they're even asking that question. They're saying. He's good. That's obvious. Obviously, something more, something greater is being communicated here. That that textual analysis is just—it's sort of like it's like a holy cynicism, but it's a, it's it's like a, a, anyway. I think you know what I'm saying. So so what they say is the Gemara and Sota goes on to say that um, that's, that that there's a connection between these words Kitov that she saw that he was good. And the first Ketov in the Torah, which is at the beginning, right at the beginning of the Torah, when it says that Hashem saw the light and it was good. So, so, ah, so now the rabbis are going to say something very, very, very deep. They're saying that the Torah, that Hashem, is hinting at the following thing. That the goodness of Moshe, it wasn't just that he was good, but that there was a goodness which was connected to the goodness of when God created light in the beginning of the world. Meaning to say, and here's the conclusion, that when when Moshe was born, the whole house was filled with light. So, that's very, very dramatic. The whole house was filled with light. Now, he was born in the third month. Okay? So, so if, if we go back to this... This Pesach over here, it says, The woman conceived and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was good, and she hid him for three months. Now, Moshe was born on the 7th of Adar. And we're taught that he was born, he was a preemie. He was actually born three months early. So he he was supposed to be born three months after the 7th of Adar. Now, if you know the Jewish calendar, three months after the 7th of Adar is the 7th of... Sivan, which is Shfuus. That's when the Torah was given. So she hid him, so his birthday was actually Shfuus. So here you see that Moshe correlates with the giving of the Torah. His birth correlates with the giving of the Torah. But it says that she hid him because, you know, unfortunately in China you have something very similar to what the Egyptians were doing back, in the, back, back when this was written. You know, in China, there's a law that you can only have a certain number of children. One. And one, one, exactly. And they force women to have abortions and horrible things in, in China with this, you know. And, uh, and so the Egyptians, once they found out that a woman was pregnant, they made a note on the calendar and they'd come by the ninth month to pick up the child and to, to dispose of the child. Okay, by the way, and this is like a really freaky thing. They drowned these Jewish children in the Nile, the boys. And when the plague of frogs happened, all these frogs came out of the Nile. The Egyptians were totally freaked out because they heard the groaning of the sounds of the frogs and the frogs jumping out of the Nile. And they thought that these were the reincarnated souls of the drowned children coming on Egypt to take revenge. So they were, they were, I don't know what other, it was like this nightmare, you know, these frogs, you know, they're coming after us, right? The dead souls of these children. Isn't that wild? So, so anyway, let's, let's backtrack for a moment. So Moshe was born in the sixth month, so she could hide him for three months, because she was afraid that the Egyptians were going to see the light and that they were going to come after the baby. Okay, because now she also knew that there was something very special about this baby because he was born circumcised. Moshe was born circumcised. Now this correlates with Adam Harishon, the first person who was also born circumcised. And now we have to begin to backtrack. Okay. Because we're covering a lot of material, and we have to show the sources for all these things, because it's really quite amazing. I said that we were going to do an overview of the history of light, so let's begin from the very beginning. One of the holiest names of Hashem is the name Or Ein Sof, which means light without end, which I think to me is one of the most poetic expressions of anything that I've ever heard. Uh light without end so that's an expression of the infinity of god and so what hashem did was he took his light and he created this space within himself called the vacated space he cleared out a space for where he would create the world now interestingly that's a little that sort of parallels the womb of a person right and just like just like god Shown a light into this womb, so to speak, and the world was created, so it is with every person who comes out of a womb is called a world. Right? Because every single person is called a world. So you have, basically, uh, on the macro level, what happens in terms of the birth of every person. That's what, that's what so to speak, how the Kabbalists express how God created the world. So, we're all little worlds. And this was like within the creation of the entire universe. This is how it happened also. So anyway, God shines a light into this vacated space. And the the big joke is that the vacated space, where the world exists, where the universe exists, is also filled with godliness. So there's no space that's not filled with godliness, right? So, so God shone this light into the world. And this light basically gets condensed and hardened. This is called Simsum. All this is called Simsum, contraction. And, and material, materiality becomes formed. Now, it says that God saw this good light, and he saw that the Rishayim, the wicked, were going to bask in this light, and he said it's not appropriate that they should do that. So it says God hid away this light. This initial light of creation. This light that's called good, right? So where did God put this light? So when it refers to the light at the beginning of the Torah, it says, uh, the word for light in Hebrew is or. It says es ha or, referring to this light. And the Vinaya Saskar points out that the gematria of this phrase, es ha or, the light, is 613. So where did God put Eshaor, where did God put the light? Into the 613 mitzvahs, into the Torah itself. So God hid this light in the Torah. Alright. Now, now you see, all of a sudden, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, is born, and the house is filled with light. And what light is that compared to, that Kitov, when it says that she saw that he was good? To the initial light of creation. And where did God put that initial light of creation? Into the Torah. Which parallels with Moshe. And what did Moshe do? Bring the Torah. So here you have this amazing sequence of the history of light from the before the world was created, into the world, into the Torah, into Moshe. Alright. Now... Now there's there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. Torah, Moshe everybody knows is named after um, is named by is named by the daughter of Paro, who by the way was going to convert to Judaism. It says when she the Gemara says that when she went down to the Nile, she was going to the Nile in order to take a mikvah to convert to Judaism. And to sort of wash off the idols of her father. Right? So, here she's going. She's this amazing truth seeker. The daughter of Pharaoh. This amazing truth seeker who's throwing off idolatry and all the lies of this world. And is going down to the Nile. And who does she intersect with? Moshe! She, she like, saves Moshe. And she gives him this name. Which means to be drawn forth because she draws him out of the water. Okay. So, this is the story how, it, how everyone understands it. But I just learned a new piece of information which is that Moshe actually didn't get the name Moshe until he was two years old. So the Chasim Sofer in one of the wildest pieces of Torah that I've read in a long time asks a great question which is, what was Moshe's name the first two years of his life. If he didn't get the name Moshe until he's two, what was he called the first two years of his life? So let's just leave that question for one moment. We're going to go into that. I want you to hear how the, where it says that Moshe didn't get the name until he was two. You have to kind of derive it, but it's right here. Okay. So Bas Paro, the daughter of Paro, this is chapter 2, verse 8 uh, in Exodus. The daughter of Paro said, Go. The girl went, that's Miriam, the girl went and summoned the boy's mother, Moshe's mother. Paro's daughter said to her, Take this boy and nurse him for me and I will give you pay. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. The boy grew up. Okay, these are the first two years of his life. The boy grew up and she brought him to the daughter of Paro and he was a son to her. So now this is after The two years. The next line, she called his name Moshe. For she said, for I drew him out of the water. So you see from there that he, like when you read it right away, you think, oh, he got the name Moshe right away as soon as he was drawn forth. But he doesn't get it till he's two. Okay. So so the Chassam Sofer asks the following question. What was his name the first two years of his life? Alright? And he answers it's the name Shagam. So it's like what? Shagam? Where are you getting that from? Well, how about the Gomorrah? <laughs> How's that for a source? So the Gomorrah says in on page hundred and thirty nine, okay, there's this great, great run in the uh, in the Gomorrah where it asks, remember, our premise is that everything in the entire world, everything that ever was or ever will be, is contained in the Torah. So, the Gomorrah asks a series of questions, which are, where is the name of Esther in the Torah? Since, since, Since Esther happens historically after the five books, but if everything is in the Torah... Certainly Esther, who saves the entire Jewish people, has to be in the Torah. Where is Esther hinted at in the Torah? And they give an answer. Where is Mordechai in the Torah? Where is Haman in the Torah? And gives an answer to all these things. Right? This is all in 139b in Chulin. But the very first question is, by the way, this is asked by, I have to track down who, who these people are, okay? These questions were asked by the Papa Nui. I have no idea who the Papa Nue are. They live in New Guinea, I think. They sound like that, don't they? It absolutely sounds like that. But I don't think they were. So um, so the Papa Nue want to know where where is Moshe referred to in the Torah? Now, that's a really wild question. Because... Moshe is the most frequently used word in the entire Torah. All the other people they're asking about happen historically after the five books. Moshe, who's within the context, who gave the entire Torah, who was the conduit for the entire Torah. Why do you need a hint to where he is in the Torah before he comes up in the Torah? So the question itself is quite is is, is quite strange. By the way, I, I have. I've been thinking that. I have a, an answer to suggest. You know, but, but anyway, let me give you what the Gomorrah says first. So it says, um, "Rab Masna says, uh, it's from this word, bishagamhu, basa, um which means, since we're basically mere flesh. All right, I'm going to read you the footnote over here. This is um, from Breshis, chapter 6, verse 3 and just to give you the context of where bishagam oh by the way just to explain bishagam is the gematria 345 which is the gematria of moshe okay so that's where they see the hint to moshe appearing before you see him in the torah this word bishagam is the same gematria as moshe so that's that's a hint to moshe but we'll see there's there's there, there's more to it than that here's the whole Pasuk. and hashem said now just again to set the stage, this is at the end of the uh, the first Parsha of the Torah, Parshas Gratis, when Hashem is going to bring the flood on the entire world. And Hashem said, My spirit shall not contend evermore concerning man, inasmuch, that's the word Bishagam, as he is mere flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Okay? <clears throat> now the art scroll. Uh, footnote here is in its simple meaning this verse refers to the decadent people of Noah's generation and God's decision to destroy them in the great flood unless they would repent within 120 years. Okay? Now, what's interesting about this as an allusion to Moshe also is not only is Bishagam uh, the Gamache of Moshe's name but by the end of the Pesach it refers to uh, 120 years which is how old he lived how long he lived for. But there's another level to this, which is Noah is re- Noah becomes Noah. Remember, God is bringing the flood right now. Noah is going to become reincarnated as Moshe. That's our, our tradition in terms of the uh, transmigration of souls. And Noah, it says, built the ark for a period of 120 years. Not only that, but the Torah could have been given during Noah's generation. In fact, it was supposed to be given during Noah's generation. But because the people didn't deserve it, the spiritual attribute... Remember, whenever we talk about, it says in Baba Basra, whenever we talk about water, we're always talking about Torah. Because the generation didn't deserve the spiritual manifestation of Torah, they got the physical manifestation of Torah which was water. And since the Torah is so great, the flood came down and wiped out the whole world. But you see there this amazing correlation in that Pasuk with Bishagam, which is the gamatri of Moshe, and 120, which is how long Noah built the ark for, and the fact that Noah becomes Moshe, and the fact that the Torah could have been given during the time of Noah, all of these things are happening simultaneously in that Pasuk. Okay, but anyway, let's go further. So, the Hasem Sofer says that you see in the Torah, an early reference is Bishagam. Now, Bishagam begins with the letter Bez. Bez is the number two, everyone knows, right? Aleph, Bez. Aleph is one, Bez is two. So, when did Moshe get the name Moshe? when he was two years old. So take the word Bishagam and lose the first Beis, because if you want to know what he was called before he was two, lose the letter Beis, which is two, and you're left with the word Shagam. And you'll see there's more to it than what I'm about to say. But from that, the Chasam Sofer, one of our greatest Torah giants, concludes that before he was two years old, Moshe's name was Shagam now if that were the end of the thought you'd go what else you got (laughs) move it on tell me something I can sink my teeth in (laughs) Okay, but that isn't the end of the thought alright because Shagam is the gematria 343 now that may not ring any bells for you but that's a very big number Let me tell you why. Because the sun, during the messianic era, when everything is fixed, remember, we're talking about the history of light right now. Okay? And just to set up this final thought, let's just go back to the beginning. First is the orange soap, light without end. Then Hashem shines that ray of light, the kav, into the vacated space, right? The light comes into this world then God sees that that light should be hidden away. He puts it in the Torah itself, right? Es Haor, 613, into the Torah itself. Then comes Moshe Rabbeinu, who's Kitov, who's likened unto that initial light. He brings down the Torah, and what was his name initially, before he gets the name Moshe? Shagam. What is Shagam? The Gematria 343, and it says... In the Targum Yonasan, that the sun at the end of days is going to be 343 times stronger than it is now. Okay. Now, where do you see that? Where do you see that? You see that in a Pusuk from Yeshua. Okay? And that's um, chapter 30. Verse 26. And the light of the moon shall be like the light of the sun. Because you can't give a brief history of light without talking about the diminishing of the light of the moon, right? What happened was God diminished the light of the moon because it wanted to be as big as the sun. And that basically is a, um, a way that the sages say that God decreased his light, hid his light in this world so that we would have free choice. Okay, But in the end of the days the light of the moon is going to go back to what it was initially, before it was concealed. Alright, a lot of people finish the teaching there, but there's another big revelation here. So, this is again, chapter 30, verse 26. And the light of the moon shall be like the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of the seven days. Okay, sevenfold means seven times seven. Okay, which is 49. So 49 times as it was the light of the seven days. So that means it's going to be 49 times greater than the initial light of creation. Seven times seven times seven, and Rashi brings this, seven times seven times seven is 343. Okay. And then the rest of the pasuk is on the day the Lord shall bind the fracture of his people, and the stroke of their wound shall heal. In other words, we're going to be all fixed up. I so. The extra seven? I seven times seven is sevenfold. Right. Times. And the light of the sun shall be sevenfold, meaning seven times seven, 49 times, mm-hmm. as the light of the seven days. So that's the initial light of creation. So it's going to be... It's going to be 343 times what it was initially. Okay? And the way the Chasim Sofer says it is um, that that 343 corresponds to the rays of the sun during the Messianic year. Which will be 343 times as powerful as the sun as we know it. Now, that is, um, he also quotes here, the Targum Yonasan, to Devarim 5.31. So, that's another place you can look besides Ishai. Um, and by the way, it may be 343 times what it was after it was reduced, I'm not sure, or the initial light. When it says the, the 40 t- 49 times the light of the seven days, I'm not immediately clear on whether that was before or after it was reduced. But either way, it's, you know, get your sunglasses, you know, because that's really a lot of light, okay? Now, we're talking like four of spiritual light. Well, I don't know, because they talk about the sheath that the sun is in, in other sources, that there is a sheath around the sun. Basically, and, you know, there's like a we have an orla. We have this foreskin on our hearts and there are all these sheaths that are going to be sort of like ripped off, basically. And like even our body is like a sheath. So basically, the the amount that that we're going to be able to um, absorb and comprehend is going to be absolutely off the charts. So it, it may be a real light or it may be talking about a spiritual light or there may be a spiritual light within the physical light of the sun, I I don't know how it's going to manifest itself. But what I think is most significant here, and this I think is kind of the practical point, is that whenever I've been learning these sources up until now, I saw that the arrival of the messianic era, of 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 the fixing, of the culmination of everything, was basically going to be a return to the initial perfection that existed before we ate from the tree, and everything like that. Here you see a very big new idea, a very important idea, which is that it doesn't just go back to what it was before. It gets way better. It gets way better. And that's very important, because it shows us that our life in this world is not just to get back to the place where we're out of the doghouse. You know, that's not what we're doing. We're not just fixing a mistake, We're making everything better. That's huge. That's a very, very, very important point. A very important point. And you know, I was thinking of like sort of like a a crazy, very sort of simplistic way of illustrating this, okay? So imagine you go to a hotel, a nice hotel, right? And then you wake up in the morning. You don't make your own bed, right? You're at a hotel, you don't make your own bed. That's one of the pleasures of going to a hotel, right? You come back, and your bed is made. But it's not just that your bed is made, right? Because that's just returning it to the way it was before. Your bed is made, and they put a chocolate on the pillow. It's better than it was before. It's not the same, it's better. So, with that in mind, let's go back to the overview. There's the orange self, the light without end, at the beginning of creation. God shines the light into this world. He then hides that light into the Torah. That light returns with Moshe, who brings the Torah. Then here's the critical step. Through the Torah, and with, through Moshe, so to speak, because we say, Torah Moshe. See, it's very significant that we say, Torah Moshe, the Torah of Moshe. Because you see that God put that light initially in the Torah, and he also put it in Moshe. So, Torah Moshe is the exact same idea, do you see? Through Torah Moshe, we make the world not only back to its original perfection, but even greater than it was originally. So, a couple more things. With this in mind, you can understand another level to the teaching that it says that Moshe is compared to the sun and Yehoshua to the moon. Now you see how much the sages have going on simultaneously whenever they quote something. Moshe, who's originally called Shagam, which is the Gemachia 343, which is the light of the sun, when the world culminates in its perfection, right beyond its perfection. They're not just comparing Moshe to the sun. They're really comparing him to the sun. (laughs) To the sun in the end of days. All that's contained within the words of the rabbis. So, I want to quote my wife Judy again because she said something awesome, I thought. She said, knowing this, it's amazing that we didn't turn Moshe into a god. Just knowing what we know about world history and and human civilization. how, How awesome it is about the Jewish people that we didn't turn him into a god. And I would add that Moshe didn't turn himself into a god. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, the bottom line is, it's all about making everything better. To make everything better. That's why we're here. Now, with this in mind, I got another level to understand something, a, a thought that I'm still kind of trying to wrap my mind around, which is, why did God create the world? You know, I asked this the other day, and someone said something. I, You know, I never went back to answer what he... I brought a story and I went on a whole another thing, but I said, "Why did God create the world?" And a, a very special, interesting person said, "Because He was lonely." I thought, "Wow, that was intense." Now God doesn't have human emotions. Kaviocha, we say always, you know. So I don't know how how, how much. To put on that. But just the fact that he said that was, was, was quite interesting. But anyway, what I wanted to bring was an answer from the Katsuk That God created the world in order to lift up the heavens. And that's, like I say, that's, that's for me, I'm still trying to figure out what that means. To elevate the heavens. That's why God created this world. To elevate the heavens. But, based on what we've been saying, That through the Torah Moshe, we bring about a revelation of light into this world, 343 times greater than the seven days of creation. You see that we're elevating the entire universe. And that's what our work here is doing. So, Hashem should bless us. We should all shine. We should all be a source of light. And we should try to endeavor to ask ourselves the question whenever we do something, not just did I do it, but did I make it better than it was before? And that will be the truest, fastest way to bring about the redemption of the world.